Good morning, Jermaine. Good morning, Mark. And good morning to all our curious Aniki podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us. Binary. And uh, <laughs> today we're going to be discussing New Vision of China. Hmm. Why did you sigh there, Jermaine? It was kind of theatrical. Oh, okay. very, uh, very, very enjoyable. Good. Also, oh, thank you. And um, also, it's kind of preemptive of what's about to happen. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Let's kick it off then. So, as you know, here on Curious Anarchy, well, one of the things we like about ourselves is that we enjoy having an international flavour of understanding the world we live in. And we've spent a lot of time in the past talking about things that happen in the UK and things that happen in America and what have you. So we thought we'd focus a little bit on China. I'm going to ask Jermaine, first of all, to give me his impressions of China. My impressions of China are, <clears throat> how do I say, can I say regal? Um, yeah, say regal. There's the whole kind of ancient, revered aspect the culture, the traditions, um, and this is this is all kind of from what I've seen from either like anime or cartoons or films or documentaries. Uh huh. I've no practical, like actual experience with China. Okay. As in, I've never been there. I would like to go there someday. Um, oh. that would be a very interesting visit. Um. Yeah, and then of course there's the other layer to it, where how China seems to fit in or not fit in into the the, the worldwide community. Um, but there's still a very, very much embedded um, in that. So it's kind okay. of kind yeah. of kind of double-sided, if if you get what I mean. So politically, they're not very, you know, sort of in and amongst everybody but in terms of like enterprise and business like they're pretty much the, the powerhouse of the world okay so why do you think that you know that there's a thousand years of culture and history there how did that come about that you know about it well because i've experienced of it and read stories or so I'm, th- I'm thinking more or... from the point of view of China rather than your point of view. China spent about a thousand years closing its doors to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. How do you now know about these things? Because they're out there already. What there. made them like... change their policy about opening their doors? Uh, was this to do with the Great Wall? Uh, no, no, actually it wasn't. The, the Great Wall was, well, that was part of actually closing China, if you like. Mm. But I'm talking about what made them open up to the outside world. They'd lived thousands of years as a self-contained com- community and culture and history and, and society. What made them acknowledge and awaken to the, the greater world? Um, and the clue would be what made any country wake up to that? when foreigners came along. Yep. And when you say came along, do you want to amplify that a little bit? Yeah. Um, are you talking about the Opium War? Was that their first? Well, like, one, it was one of their first. 
if I'm not wrong, I mean, I'm happy to be corrected by anyone out there, especially if you're in China. But my understanding, other than sort of bits of training that went on along the Silk Road, their first interaction, or the first we in the West got to hear properly about China was from uh, Marcus Polo, who who spent time as a as a young man in the courts of China. I think I believe the story I heard was that he was left there as a sort of um, ambassador. Well, no more than that, an insurance policy from his father to say I'll be coming back. So it was like a. You know, like you'd leave your watch and say, "I'm coming back to pay my debt," sort of thing. It was a bit like that, really, but with his son. Right. And he came wow. back about 14 years later or something. So it took a long time to come back. Um, but but up until that point, very little was known about China, and China didn't have a great desire to know a lot about what was outside. They were self-contained within their own borders. Uh, occasional you know, conflicts with neighbouring countries, particularly Russia and, and Japan. Yeah, but on the whole, they were happy to potter as they had done for many, many millenniums. Mm. And then we've come to the Opium Wars. So when we look at China today, we need to take into account why and what was the Opium Wars. Do you want to give us a little rundown of your knowledge of that? Um, okay, so the Opium War、um, occurred、um, as part of this Silk Road. Uh, route of trade between England,、uh, India, and China. Yep.、Um, from what I know, there was a particular event where the British or the English were trying to smuggle in、um, heroin, and China didn't like it. And I think at one point they told them, but then、yep. the British continued to do it, and then they ended up burning one of the ships. Yep.、Um, which then put them in a bit of a predicament because Britain then turned around and says, "You owe us for that." And what was the consequence of that?、Um, they they had a huge debt against for, for against Britain. They had a huge what? Sorry, say that again. Debt. Right. Okay. Yeah. But what was the immediate like? So at that point, Britain、oh, were preparing、yeah. to invade China. What 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 stopped that from happening? What was the、uh, payoff, if you like, from from to stop that happen?、Um, ooh, ooh. So at that point, England's getting ready to invade. China's like, we don't want、yeah. you to invade because no one's ever come in here. We want to keep、But、China for China. What was they the... couldn't afford anyway because everyone was high on heroin. Well, not everyone. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say everyone. No, not everyone.、Uh, you know what I mean. A lot、But、of armies. A lot of armies ran on getting their soldiers doped up, so that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. <laughs> you know, there's stories of, of American soldiers in Vietnam taking all sorts of drugs before they went into combat.、Um, so、uh, I don't know if that would, in itself, would have been a problem.、And、as you know, that China's got the largest population in the world, so. You know, I don't think that you know. Let's say two billion people were taking heroin,、uh, heroin or whatever, or opium or whatever. So I don't think、yeah. that would have been an issue. But China was very clear they didn't want foreigners into their country. That was the whole point of keeping this isolated approach to the world.、Mm-hmm. And so to get the British off their back, they had to give a compromise. They had to offer a、That's、gift、true. to keep 
them at bay, but allow the British to have a, a trading port. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that was? Um, I'm thinking Hong Kong. Correct. You're thinking 100% correctly. Okay, okay. So Hong yeah. Kong was given as a lease for 99 years. And there was a big hoo-ha about handing it back uh, in the eighties, yeah, yeah 80s or nineties or something like that. Um, oh, okay. There was a, a big kerfuffle when England tried to have a, a closing down ceremony with a pattern, a Conservative MP pattern. Right. And, uh, the Chinese just mocked him as being a fat pig, sort of thing. Basically, it was a complete lack of uh, coordination right. between the two sides, if you like. Um, yeah, so that was the that was the trade-off. So for, for for most of its existence, China has tried very, very hard to keep away from the world. Yeah. However, the world doesn't feel the same way about it. Hmm. So the world has consistently battered on the doors of China. We would have to go forward to two major events that happened in China in the 20th century mm-hmm. that forced it gagging and, and and reluctantly like a child not wanting to eat his breakfast yeah. to the table firstly the the invasion of japan uh, along with the axis powers during the war so china was conquered for a short time by the japanese yeah. one of their most hated enemies <laughs> China and Japan have very different philosophies about the way the world should go and a way about what were important in the world. And the second event was the communist revolution under Mao Zedong. Um, both of those events changed the shape of, of China completely, completely. Um, and as a result, it gave the, the rest of the world an excuse to keep trying to get involved with China when China had asked specifically not to have that happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it kind of opened the door. So, for example, as a communist country, it was rely it, it was forced to rely on the only allies it could find. Yeah. And as you all know, at the time, the only big major communist country at the time was Russia. So it was forced to have a relationship with Russia. It's a bit like you being forced to have a relationship with someone you don't particularly want to have a relationship with, but you kind of have to. That's kind of how China dealt with it. Um, um, So that shaped its course of events until about 1989 when the Soviet communist revolution fell fell apart and and it came bowling hand to join the Western capitalist world. Right. Its economy was destroyed. Um, it had spent fifty odd years trying to keep up with the United Kingdom, uh, with United States, and it had become bankrupt. And its only option was to then join the market rather than fight against it, which left China on its own. And China had a unique problem: we want to keep our communism, but we want to join the world market as well because we're isolated. We've got no way of joining in. How can we resolve that issue? They asked themselves. And they came up with a very Chinese and a very, very unique response. Are you, are you familiar with what they did? Because I know you dabble in the world of commerce. <laughs> um, 
what did they do? They traded, they, they traded rice? No, they created special economic zones. Okay. They had three or right. four yeah. special yeah. economic zones within the country where westernization was allowed. Anything goes. And the rest of the country was kept in peasant communism. Hmm. So, for example, if you lived anywhere else in the world, you would adhere to the the culture that gone on for many, many centuries. Um, and you were subject to the communist dictatorials, such as you can only have one child per family and things like that. You know, there were very specific rules in place. Whereas in the special economic zones, Western businesses were invited to come. People came from the countryside to enrich themselves by doing any activity they could think of. Mm-hmm. So you had four or three little Europe's it within the, within the, uh, the, the the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And as time has moved on, communism has become more and more watered down, and China has become more of a player on the world market. To the point that many people now would say China is the second, if not the first, major power in the world. Yeah. So I thought it's about time we discuss China because as we see the beast awakening a bit like in The Hobbit when the, the dragons awoken, uh, as we see this this uh, country awaken into a world player, not just a, a national player, we have to explore what the world might look like with China as a major, major player in that world. But it's it's there's a part of me that's like, well, how much more can China do? Uh, I'm not sure if you're being ironic or not. Um, no, it, it's just a, a I question. Think, like, I think, how much more? Can I think do? it's not even started yet. To be honest with you. And I think what you have to understand is at the moment, it's kept at arm's length by the United States. Mm-hmm. Economically and militarily, the only threat to China in this world is the United States of America. Or the rest of the world gang up against it if we ever decided to do that. But I'm saying, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's only single nation that could combat it, it's the United States. And what we're seeing at the moment in this day and age is the United States going through a mighty confusion about its economy and its identity and its political direction. It's as confused as it's ever been as a nation, the United States. To to just imagine the right wing in America storming its own capital shows you how confused that country is. And all the while China's sitting there and if people are historians, they'll they'll recognize a very similar to how the United States sat there and watched the world have a second world war until it decided to join in. China is sitting there and watching America implode. But it would be wrong to say it's sitting there because it's it's up to certain activities at the moment, as we know. The backdrop of China at the moment is in a huge investment and political uh, entry into Africa yeah, and building camps, huge concentration camps for Muslims in the, in the north of its country. 
And this they're doing, the this they're doing against the backdrop of sitting and waiting. Mm. Mm. It's a bit like watching someone um, play a game of risk or a game of chess and building their pieces into place. Almost as if to say, well, how far can I go before you're going to start asking me to stop? Mm. Of all the countries that have done nasty things to its own population, China's got a pretty easy ride with the uh, the way it's treated the Muslims up till now. It's been going on for quite a while now and, and the world has not exactly stamped its foot down. The last, time, the last time the world allowed camps like this to be built and not do anything, a world war followed. Mm-hmm. However, I suppose my question to you would also be, is China doing this as a matter of course, or is it also because China has been forced to wake up? Mm-hmm. Um. I think a part of it is that China needs to strengthen itself. Yep, yep, yep. Against the outside world. Yep. And it's kind of like a a weird um, contradiction because by strengthening itself, it's having to build relations with the outside world. But the countries that they're building relationships with aren't like global north or you know the Western society. Um, yeah. So that, what, where, where, is it, where, where is it strengthening? Africa. Right. So can you think of another world power that did that as well in, in, in that sort of way? Britain. So, so perhaps you're copying a pattern that was already used, mm. you know, to, mm. to, to build a set of, um, like domino pieces, put them in place before it's ready to look at the, the, the bigger, the wider markets of the world. Could that be a possibility? Possible. Okay. Very okay. possible. It's certainly an option for sure. I'm going to ask you a philosophical question now. Ooh, I like these. What percentage of the West do you think China knows about in terms of understanding culture, history, language, all those things? And then what percentage do the West know about China? Oh, um, okay. Um, I would say that China knows quite a lot. Okay, why would you say that? Give me two reasons why that might be. Okay, because I know that they have or have had um, people leave China and enter into the Western world to effectively do a sort of reconnaissance, if you like. Um, okay. I, can I take you back a little bit earlier than that, before that mm. happened? Mm-hmm. Would there be any evidence of Chinese uh, footprints in most countries before what you're talking about? Oh, um, possibly. Where would you see that? Where would you see those uh, those evidences? Um, 
I just thought it'd be most most obvious in most places that you look. Architecture. That's a question. <laughs> Are you still there, Mark? Mark? Hello. Hello. Yeah, you're still there. Yeah, I'm yeah. here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear you now. Sorry, I don't know why. I, I have no idea why I'm cutting out. Um, <laughs> I was I was saying to you that most most countries in the world have a Chinatown in their capital cities, if not even in their smaller cities. Hmm. Why was that the case? Um. Again, this whole sort of, uh, what do you call it? Slum building, if you like. Um, no, I mean, why Why was, why was were the populations of Chinese people in these countries? Probably 100 or 200 years ago. Why were they there? If I said to you, why were, for example, African people in a lot of countries in Europe, you tell me because of slavery. Why were the Chinese there? In the United States, in London, in, in Birmingham, in, in France, in, in Germany. Why were there Chinese people in communities living in those countries about 100 years ago? Was it slavery as well? Well, what was the nature of that slavery? What was, it, what was the purpose? What did they want the Chinese populace to do? trade with them no you don't need people to come and live in your country to trade with you i can trade with someone from egypt they don't have to come and live in my house well yeah so what um, what was the purpose of having them come to live in their countries mm, i don't know i'll give you a clue it was a major what? technological advancement that the chinese were very good at working with gunpowder well, that is true, but it wasn't what we were talking about. It's, uh, oh, okay. Uh, a much more mass-used technological innovation at the time. A hundred years ago. If not 150 years ago now, maybe even 200. Mm. I, I keep forgetting what century you're in, but uh, probably about 200 years ago now, to be honest. Okay. Um, you're going to have to help me with this one. Okay, so... At the time, the world changed with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and particularly a specific form of transport. Train? Yeah, the train. The Chinese were generally employed to build railways. Mm. Which is why you have Chinatowns in most places around the world, because they brought a community of Chinese people to come and live there. and and work there. I mean, obviously there were Chinese people who came later on from for various other reasons, but I'm saying initially that was the thinking. Very interesting. I'm just thinking of uh, Birmingham, which is where I'm from, and Chinatown is literally a stone's throw from New Street Station, which is the main train station. Exactly, yeah. It's interesting because obviously if you were going to have people working on the train station, on the train it would be ideal to have them very nearby 
that, that, wow. So if you also think, say in London, Chinatown is in the West End where the major railways are. Whereas mm. if you went to the East End of London, you'd see, certainly a hundred years ago, you'd have seen area after area built to facilitate people living in the docks so they could unload the ships. A lot of them were Irish, Caribbean, and English. Whereas in Chinatown, predominantly, they were the Chinese. And obviously, after the need to build the railways had stopped, they, they went into other businesses that you see around Chinatown. So, that's the reason why China has contacts in most countries in the world, much more than them sending agents to do stuff. They've already got communities that have lived there for, a, I mean, like, for example, you, you, if a Chinese government official came and asked a Chinese person in London about living in the United Kingdom, they'd know much more than a, an agent would in a couple of months hanging around in, in the UK. Yeah. They've lived there for a hundred years. They know pretty much all there is to know. And that's not, I'm not suggesting these people would have any liaison with those, those, those officials. But as we know, the Chinese can be at times quite persuasive in their arguments. Mm. So what we're seeing is China evolving into a major world player without necessarily having to do anything. It's like watching a boxer that doesn't really have to win many fights, get promoted to the challenger for the heavyweight crown. Yeah. It's kind of watching and sitting back and watching it just sit and relax and watch everything while the rest of the world struggles you know struggles and at the moment china is having conflict with the australia because they are geographically quite close and one can't help but think uh we can one can't help but think that australia's taking on a battle that might be a bit too big for it mm. Mm. but they also have the, the support of other countries as well don't they yeah well that's what i'm saying this is how the, the first world war started mm. um the, the, the two countries that initiated the conflict were minor players so what we're seeing is the beginning of, of a uh what's the word a what we're seeing is the beginning of a set of strategies going in place let's put it like that on both sides i'm sure australia feels emboldened by the united states to start running its mouth at china and i'm sure china is quite happy to you know you know when you're at school and the there's a guy that you want to have a fight with so you send your mate to go and have a, like knock him up a bit first that's kind of what's happening at the moment. just watching that you know australia acts all cocky hoping that when it turns around america's standing behind it What I find more interesting is that we've had uh, about 500 years of two empires ruling the world that were English-speaking and, and, on the whole, from the same cultural, religious backgrounds. Yeah. And yet now we face the prospect of China becoming, if not an equal player, certainly the chance that one day it might become the major player of the world. And yet we remain blissfully ignorant of its of its ways. And I'm not talking about the government and the... And the and the, let's say the the uh, very thorough way that they do things. But I'm talking more about cultural and historical and linguistic 
backgrounds of that country. I'd say when you talk to most people, the only thing they know about China is the food. So that's interesting. I find that interesting. Mm. Right. I think we're going to wrap that up there for today. Okay. Maybe we can pick it up at another time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Let's catch up on that. This is the Curious Anarchy podcast. If you want to hit us up on Twitter with any thoughts, it's at underscore Curious Anarchy on Twitter and also the same on Instagram. This is Jermaine Gregory and Mark Wilson. Hi. With the Curious Anarchy podcast titled Tea with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. Take care.